When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 98, The Principality Governed. Happy St. David's Day to one and all from the Welsh History Podcast. It is, of course, March the 1st on 2019, for those of you wondering why I would be mentioning this. And uh, I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're celebrating um, Welsh history and your Welsh ancestry or your affinity to Wales, whatever it be. As I think this is one of those fun times where we get to all sort of celebrate and enjoy something about this little nation which matters so much to so many people. And, uh, of course, when my kids were younger, they used to attend school with rugby jerseys and wearing uh, the typical Welsh dress that you would be able to find for the girls And uh, it was all good fun and and very entertaining, and I highly recommend uh, people check it out. It's a little different than St. Patrick's Day or other days of the nature, but certainly has a lot of very cool aspects to it and is is a very fun activity and and certainly something that, if you have a link to the country in some way, it helps you to understand better, I think, some of the reasons why you have that link and, and what's so interesting about it. So totally recommend you take part, you know, in whatever way you can, even if it's only online. Uh, It's certainly something that's entertaining and interesting and and well worth it. I should also say that congratulations are in order to the Welsh rugby team who beat England last week uh, in the Six Nations. Again, dating this episode rather badly. Um, It it was a really good effort and uh, congratulations to them for sure. And obviously, yeah. Yet another famous day in Welsh rugby history. Anyway, moving on. So, in the summer of 1267, Llewellyn Ep Griffith was effectively crowned the Prince of Wales by treaty with the King of England. By 1268, his greatest foe, Prince Edward, was on his way to going on crusade. Taking many of those who had been a problem for Llewellyn, including Roger Mortimer, and eventually possibly Gilbert de Clare, to name just two. This window of a few years would be critical in allowing Llewellyn to establish stability and, for his sake, to finally do what he had not yet been able to, which is create a family and have an heir of his own, and begin to set the stage for the succession of the Prince of Wales. To this point, Llewellyn had spent over 20 years fighting for his kingdom. This may have left little time for courting or creating the political alliances he needed, or he may just not have been interested in settling down at this point, or, possibly, the reality was as he wanted to leave himself open because until he finalized everything, he couldn't make an alliance that was satisfactory. This will all change in the next coming 
decade, but change in ways that will create more problems than maybe it was worth. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, this was something that obviously was going to preoccupy him for the coming years. While King Henry was preoccupied himself on the task of regaining his levers of power and enforcing the new reality of his leadership on his realm, uh, which kept him obviously busy. And Edward himself was busy trying to go on crusade and trying to take the fight to the Saracens, to use that terminology. Now, however, it is time to discuss both the good and bad of the new ruling culture in the Principality of Wales and how the treaty affected the Welsh state. In 1268, as the ruling commenced, so did the conflicts with the marcher lords. Certainly, even as some of them went off to go on crusade, there were still conflicts to be had. There were still issues going on amongst them. In fact, Gilbert de Clare, one of those names I mentioned, uh, was still fighting with Llewellyn off and on. And in fact, Llewellyn would raid and pillage uh, Caerphilly, attacking the then under construction Caerphilly Castle and destroying it. Uh, this will actually encourage Declare to go back and rebuild the castle and in one respect rebuild it into a much finer castle and create the what we see now as the remains of the Kerfilly Castle as currently constructed. Having been there, you can see just how much the concern that the Marcher Lords must have had with Llewellyn and his ability to defeat them on the ground in open battle because Kerfilly is a masterpiece in medieval technology. It is one of those castles where you can see why it was never taken again and why it was so dangerous on the landscape. And the only way you could really have defeated it is by a long siege be without cannons and without any sort of uh, ability to attack it from range. The castle was built in such a way that there's tiers to it uh, and each tier is done to build a defense and they have moats and all sorts of different things and then they have sub islands which come off of the the actual main island to store things on so you have this massive protection from attack and then a place to store your grain and your food and all of those kind of things so that you're not starving to death plus you're on a water source so you've got access to pure water and it would make a siege there very long very trialsome and something uh which you wouldn't really want to do and to be honest it is a tremendous example of of that technology and, and certainly i would encourage anyone who's interested in the castles of wales that is definitely one to go check out um it is not one of edward's castles of course it was it was begun construction under the marcher lord and was actually in the march, so it wasn't a part of Wales at this point. So it doesn't have the same sort of, of links to that kind of Plantagenet castle building of later periods, which are obviously more about dominating the Welsh landscape and creating a sense of, I don't want to say victory, that's the wrong word, but a sense of... Uh, and domination, I don't think, is correct, although some would say that. I think it's more about the fact that it, it it creates a symbol in the landscape, which it gives you the idea of this is us and we're here to say, and you better pay attention to that. And I think that is the point of castles. That's the point of any fortification, really, is to symbolize that establishment of whatever regime has put it up. 
and to symbolize that they were going to be there for a while. I mean, most castles, unless they were blown up in later periods, still remain in some sense today. You can still see like uh, Cardiff's Castle or Kerfilly, or you can go to, you know, Carnarvon, and those castles are all still around. Harlech, all of those things exist in part because they were magnificent structures that were built to serve a purpose, of course, but also as symbols on the landscape. And obviously, we'll discuss how that affects the Welsh population later. But at this point in time, just so you understand, Kerfilly Castle, I believe, was built as structurally strong as it was because Llewellyn pretty much seemingly at will could come through and raid and pillage and take kind of what he wanted without really being struck back to this point. That will change as time goes on, of course, but at this point, he's been pretty good at, at winning the wars he has to fight and keeping the marcher lords from taking territory from him. And those battles will continue far into the future, of course, and, and we'll get into future conversations about that. But today, our focus is more about how all of this principality worked, how the running of the government affected both the common and not-so-common citizen, and how the government in Gwyneth functioned on a day-to-day -day basis for the citizens of the Welsh principality, in other words, the Welsh nation-state that existed at this point. You have to keep in mind that, that what we're talking about isn't the map of Wales as we currently see it. The, the area that it makes up the Prince of Wales's dominion is effectively only the borders of Gwyneth, Powys, the the newer borders of Doithbarth, and and the lower part of Mid Wales. It's not including the areas around Dyfed, or Swansea, or Cardiff, or what will become Newport, or any of those areas, obviously, and, and going farther along, you're not going to have any of that because those are still a part of the march. Uh, the border areas are still dominated by the English at this point. And realistically, that is the furthest extent that the Welsh will gain as a nation state to this point. Although, obviously, calling it that is a misnomer, but it is what it is. We, we have to work from what we understand, and I guess, in a way... So understanding that basis and the fact that the ruling area of Wales at this point is different from what we think of, it's still important in the understanding that, that it was an important uh, portion of Wales. It was the majority of Wales, to be fair, uh, as modern borders are concerned. However, it didn't include the richer parts of the southwest and southeast. And I think that's one of the main overarching problems that Llewellyn runs into almost immediately. From a financial basis in this period, the dominating factor on the economy is agriculture. Uh, with the exception of wool, there's very little in Britain at this point that is as dominant as agriculture. And we can argue that wool or, or the production of wool is a part of agriculture, but I mean more from the standpoint of, of growing crops and of that kind of thing. So, from that standpoint, Wales didn't have that. The, the, the principality as it stood in 1267 just doesn't have massive uh, land that it could do agriculture. In fact, the areas that are agriculturally strong and, and become the breadbasket are, are limited 
in part because of course it's fairly hilly and mountainous there's not loads of of valleys where you can grow loads of crops i mean there are and and don't get me wrong there are places where that can happen but compared to the south which has a lot more of those areas in in abundance that that's a big difference as well of course one of the aspects of that is you have the growth of anglesey as the breadbasket of gwyneth it effectively grows a lot of the crops that are used by the government and by the people and whereas the other areas become the pasture and grazing land and become better known for their milk and their meat and so i think that side of it is interesting and intriguing because certainly it, it does show a difference in that respect so let's take a look at these things shall we one of the harshest aspects for the prince of wales is the in the treaty of montgomery of 1267 is the financial disbursement he has to give on a yearly basis for quite a long period of time the first payment of course being the biggest and of course at that point he probably has the ability to raise that money but as time goes on and as he grows in size and tries to grab more land because he will actually spend more money to grab the land of Merdud Aparis, who he then has to pay a further 5,000 marks for. Just to kind of get all of this together, it's it's going to be costly. This In total, it'll cost him about 30,000 marks. And uh, we've talked about this in the past, just how expensive that is. And this problem would create continual issues for him and even going so far as to cause further trouble down the road because one of the biggest problems is, is of course he must come up with this money regardless of the economy regardless of the growing season regardless of the the warfare or building programs or or whatever else he's doing at the time in leading his people he must come up with this payment so this will be a sign of the trouble to come worse yet for Llewellyn even though he had paid this extra money for this land uh, he never gets it in part because the son of Merduth who then takes over a year later after his death uh, doesn't want to be subordinate to Llewellyn and basically deserts him at the first sign of crisis um, which of course would make it even more tricky because now all of a sudden you have this area that you wanted so badly apparently to be amongst your liege areas suddenly becomes a constant thorn in your side and a problem and yet you're still spending 5,000 marks for the privilege and mixed in with all this is the fact that the English government themselves continue to sort of if they uphold the treaty in fact they don't necessarily uphold the treaty in spirit they continue to hold uh david and griffith in place effectively to act as a threat and a promise that they would possibly turn their the control of wales over to one of these two men which of course would then create more problems for llewellyn down the road and of course leads to some of the disputes that he will have with edward amongst others later so you have that to worry about as well so with all that in mind and knowing the king's mentality at this point what we need to talk about a bit is to talk about some of the local positions and local officials that would have worked for the government at this point in part to explain kind of what their role would be and in part to understand how 
things were done so that the king, for example, could get or the prince could pay off the king and be able to finance his wars and building programs and all of those kind of things. So the first uh, character we need to talk about is the Fragla. Um, legal texts have said that this was equivalent to the Mir or the King Heller um, as basically the leading local official. And throughout the 13th century, this seems to be the title of importance. It goes on, in fact, after the conquest, this position still remains something of importance. And uh, it was designated as basically a lieutenant, and that this f official was effectively the prince's representative. In fact, this whole concept that he was the representative was important because what the prince wanted these men to do is represent him to the people rather than being sort of a, a force of their own and a force unto themselves. Uh, the scope of their authority is no more clearly illustrated than in the fact that they were the local justice for the area. They would serve out fines and punishments or in some cases even make some of the decisions in legal cases. But typically they were mostly to issue the fines and to collect fines and from those that committed issues that needed to be worried about. Um, they would effectively run those courts and uh, were responsible for them. And typically, they would represent the crown. Obviously, even the prince at the size of Wales isn't going to go everywhere. He's not going to be in specific territories all the time. In fact, it was, as we discussed previously, he was mandating to travel constantly so that his court could be seen in other parts of, the, of Wales. He was creating and keeping and defending areas of Wales from various marcher lords. Sometimes he was attacking them and carrying out warfare against them in the summertime, especially. So thus, he didn't have a lot of time on his hands to, to do what kings and rulers have typically done in the medieval period, which is to act as the chief justice of the for the crown. And so these people would obviously be a part of this judicial administration. And uh, the other role that they would then have is to represent and to supervise other local officials to make sure that they kept on what they were supposed to be doing, that they weren't basically losing the king or prince money. And so that was a big part of their role. And uh, there were different people who were in equivalent positions, but nonetheless, they these were kind of the highest level at a local level. Effectively, I guess you would look at them as like the mayor or the the county uh, reeve, to use Canadian terms. Um, they would be very much uh, in charge of that local county and cantriff in this case, and would be Im important to it. And uh, because they were trusted, they had a great deal of autonomy that may not have been the case for a lot of others. And conversely, of course, if stuff went wrong, they would, of course, be the ones immediately blamed. The next major official is one of some discussion, and there's debate about how much these officials actually existed or didn't exist. Certainly the role had to have existed at some point. Uh, it, initially, uh, the role 
of what effectively amounted to the police was kept by the army. The army was supposed to keep the peace, to enforce the peace. But you can see as the medieval period would grow, they wouldn't have the time or the ability to do that. So as they would have to, well, make war on others, uh, they wouldn't have that opportunity. So one of the roles that became important as a peacekeeping in the local area would again be something called the keys. Um, and this would be anything from taking stuff from people who had done others wrongly. You know, if you've stolen from others, your property could be seized. If you committed murder, all of those kind of things could be cause for the, the government to seize your lands, to seize your money and to seize your property or your possessions, and then to turn them over to the king. And this would become a bit of an issue because, of course, that's a lot of power that they had, and in certain cases would be problematic if, you know, the wrong kind of guy is in charge. And, you know, the, the idea that it was these officials that were generally the chief of police, effectively, they would suppress people who were doing the wrong thing. And that was kind of the argument, but they would in some cases develop problems. <laughs> uh, accusations would, would run about the fact that in some cases they were worse than the offenders, as you can imagine. I mean, the, this is a common problem that runs through the judicial police, even up to our current day. So you can imagine that if somebody had a little power and little control and effectively could use that without a lot of oversight, things could go badly fairly quickly. And like I said, it, even in this day and age when, you know, there's, there's cameras that they have to wear and all sorts of things, police officers have problems like this. Um, and we've seen this issue in places. Certainly this would make sense that there would be accusations at the very least and likely reality would tell us that that would be the case. And again, that some cases, these guys were just as bad as the thieves and the murderers and the, those that were causing problems as, as it does make in some sense. <laughs> uh, it was considered to be an ancient position. Um, what that means in a medieval idea, who knows, uh, because we all know that ancient in medieval periods could be taken for anything that they thought was slightly old. If it was out of living memory, it could be considered ancient. So just because somebody says it's ancient doesn't mean it is. But you have to understand it and you'd have to realize at some point that these positions would become a necessity. And if the army isn't taking care of it, like in Roman times, you know, it was it was the military's responsibility to keep the peace. So you can imagine that that would be their general role in this period. But in the um, in Wales at this point in time, to have such a specific position, certainly it's becoming more prominent in England at this period. But but I with the sheriff or the shire reeve. Um, but I think that's something we have to pay attention to. The next important point is people who are tax collectors. Uh, obviously, as you can imagine, in any circum circumstance, medieval or modern or ancient, tax collectors were not probably looked on terribly fondly. Uh, they would collect taxes, fees, fares, all sorts of things. There would be anything from 
you know, using a fairy to getting married to, you know, fines you'd have to pay for various offenses you've committed. Uh, one of the things that they could actually gain remuneration from, strangely, is if you've had uh, sex out of wedlock, um, in order to get married, you had to pay a fine. So there was that uh, as well. Another thing that would happen is if your parent died when you were a minor, um, you would have to pay a fee in order to acquire their land when you gained your age of majority. So in one case that was fairly famous, it was said that it cost that person seven pounds to acclaim the land of his father and his uncles after they had died when he was not of age of majority, which in Wales at the time was 14. Um, and some it, historians have argued that this is because that particular person had effectively become the ward of the crown. And so the argument was that he was paying for his guardianship. Um, but I think the other thing you can start to look at as this goes along is that it's examples of Llewellyn having to try and grab more and more money to help pay off his debts. Uh, another example of this is in the case of the way he treated uh, places that he would go to hunt. It used to be that what would happen is, is that at certain points of the year, the king would go to a certain place. That would be his hunting spot. And for the time he's there, the local area would have to fund you know, the, the food and, and various things. They'd have to pay a food rent effectively uh, to help upkeep all these men and equipment. Like we said, that can be hundreds of people, um, followers, hangers-on, officials, military men who are protecting the, the prince, and all of that kind of thing. But with Llewellyn, he charged that even if he didn't show up that year. With previous princes, they didn't necessarily charge that amount if they didn't show up. Obviously, that's that's a tough thing to ask somebody to do, especially if you're not even going to be there to hold this aside and to give it to you after the fact. So this expectation that they would have to pay regardless, again, I think it looks in part to a changing system, but I think it also looks to the part that he's having to make these payments on an annual basis, and they're massive payments. They're not small, and I think he's looking for ways to to gain that money uh, another thing that they did was there was accusations that Llewellyn raised money on a tax by head basis so if you had you know certain servants for every servant you had you had to pay this much tax uh, and the argument there was is, was it something that was new or was it something that was always there, but all that happened was is Llewellyn expected you'd pay more because the, the, the one specific town that's mentioned, it was three pence a head uh, where people were shocked and appalled, but were they shocked and appalled because they were being charged three pence a head? Or was it because it used to be one pence a head or a half penny a head, and now all of a sudden they're being expected to pay three? Um, that's the part that unfortunately our records don't tell us a lot about and can't inform on us enough to give us a good understanding of that. Um, again, the other interesting thing that, that I found in researching this that I think is really interesting is, is the king would also, or the prince in this case, would also seize any shipwrecks or any treasure that was found on land that wasn't yours. 
and in the case of a shipwreck, if it was yours, uh, unless you could prove that it wasn't shipwrecked, you lost it. And in fact, this will create problems with some of the English lords down the road because Llewellyn just kept that. And again, this is a change. It wasn't always this way, but Llewellyn had changed it. And I think, again, we're looking at a situation where, because even that's not like a it's not like everybody shipwrecks every day or something. So it's not money you would get on a consistent basis. So the fact that he would do this would go, I think, again, to show that there was a financial issue. And because of the financial issue and the straps that it put upon the nation, he went to desperate lengths to continue to collect that money. And all of this, of course, would come down to the local officials and how diligent they were. And we don't know, you know, we know what's expected of them, but the reality of it is we don't know did that police officer always work well? Did that local tax collector actually collect the taxes he was meant to collect? Um, or did he keep some of it? Or, you know, and all those kind of things. And the other thing we have to understand is the taxes at this point are not necessarily financial. They're still food and milk and grain and clothing and all these other things that could be used. Uh, but there was definitely cash involved as well. If you made trades, if you had a port city, there was a big thing with gaining money off of the markets and you know anything that went into the market had to pay taxes and fares and fees. So you had every step along the way, the prince was collecting money. And again, as I said, in all likelihood to pay off the king, but in all likelihood also to pay off a fairly healthy building project platform, which was the Welsh, much like the Plantagenet English, were building castles. They were building these structures, centralizing things, and starting to urbanize in, in, to, by degrees. The Wales of rural Wales of so long was starting to come to an end with the start of the market towns, with the beginnings of castles. All of these things have become more important, and really modeling their English overlords, for lack of a better phrasing, because, of course, you can see the advantages that that gives you from a taxation standpoint. It's a lot easier to gain taxes from people that are in one small location than to try and gain it from people who are spread all over hither and yon. I mean, there are people that may live their entire lives having never interacted with a single official because they're up in the mountain ranges raising sheep, whereas somebody living in, say, Carnarvon, which you know, may have been a nothing town at this point, but but if they're living in places like that, all of a sudden they become taxable. They are easy to talk to. They're easy to enforce your rules. And, and of course, they would look at it as an advantage of being safe from robbers and other, all these various reasons why people would move there. Um, and obviously the economy and the economic advantages would be there too. And we'll talk about this, of course, as we go more into the English period. There are definite things that start to happen in Wales, which really hadn't happened to that point. But but you can see the beginnings of it during this period. I mean, the 13th century, all the way through, you see Wales becoming more and more like the rest of the medieval world and very much aligned with what was going on in the medieval world. They weren't somehow exceptions to the rule. They were just the same and just as a part of it as anybody else. So with all that in mind, 
Have yourselves a great day. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. I try and answer questions as soon as they're sent. Sometimes I'm a little slow. Please, please keep that in mind. Uh, If you don't get an answer straight away, it is coming. I guarantee it. Uh, As well, you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can always do that on Patreon at Welsh History. Uh, Thank you everyone for listening. Take care. Have a great day and enjoy your St. David's Day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News... I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.